She, I went to visit her yesterday. She's really not well. She's not doing well. Okay, we're live. We got to get started. Uh, let's see here. Uh, where are we? Um, go ahead and you don't. Do you have it open? I do. Okay, Psalm one nineteen one twenty nine. Okay. Hey, mouth, blow, scatter, edge. Your statutes are wonderful. Therefore, I obey them. Holding of your word, words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commands. Turn to me and have mercy on me, as you always do to those who love your name. Direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin rule over me. Redeem me from the oppression of men, that I may obey your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your decree. Dreams of tears flow from my eyes. Okay, uh, first couple minutes of the of the streaming is probably kind of odd, and I apologize about that. We we got some problems with the computer today, and so uh, it says that we're streaming back here, and uh, and uh, so anyway, it's fine. It's fine. Miss um, Magnuson is in the hospital, and she's not doing well. She, uh, if you go there. Uh, she she could use visitors. She's just she's having a really tough time of it. So you want to keep Miss Magnuson in prayer. And I got a prayer request for Maddie's husband. She's having surgery, or he is having surgery Monday to unblock an artery behind his knee. And uh, her friend Susie has a gas bubble in her eye, which is driving her crazy. So she's asked for prayer for her as well. And uh, let's see here. We have. Um, uh, let me read. This day in history, which today is the 16th of June. Right? 13th. Thir I'm sorry, 13th of June. Sunday's the 16th. Yep. We'll read that and then we'll get started. Let's see here. 13 June. The message was the same, but the results were quite different. In 1848, the Methodists in Vermont sent evangelist James Hoggy to Europe to minister for two years. He first went to Birmingham, England, where he had a successful five-month ministry. From there, he went by train to Nottingham, England, where he had been invited to preach in Wesley Chapel, a large church seating between two and 3,000. When John Wesley, the great Methodist evangelist, had first preached in Nottingham 105 years earlier, he had described in his journal how disappointed he was by the people's response to the gospel. Not one person who came in used any prayer at all, but Everyone immediately sat down and began talking to his neighbor or looking to see who was there. Wesley said he expounded with a heavy heart, but now things had started to change. On Coggy's first Sunday in Nottingham, God began to pour out his spirit on the chapel, and 136 people put their faith in the Lord Jesus. As the weeks went by, there were daily meetings with many putting their trust in Christ each day. On Monday evening, a prayer meeting was held and 47 more found salvation. On Tuesday night, there were 24 more. On Wednesday, 22, and so on, day after day throughout the week. One of the secrets to his success was the Methodist organized follow-up of new converts. The names and addresses of every new convert were immediately recorded. Then they were assigned to meet with the leader of the church, and the day and time of the meeting were recorded. 
The converts were also assigned to one of the classes that were held at the chapel. In addition, the chapel secretary recorded whether the new converts had met as they had promised. With such a system in place, <coughs> excuse me, no one slipped through the cracks or was overlooked. By 13 June of 1846, the day that Coggy left Nottingham, less than five weeks after his arrival, he had seen 1,000. 412 persons trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior. More than a thousand of the new converts came to his last service to bid him fair, a tearful farewell. 105 years after John Wesley's discouraged journal entry about Nottingham, Coggy wrote in his journal, Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost for such a work which only the omnipotent God could perform. Such a work as God of God as this, in so short a time, I have never before witnessed. It has been indeed one of the great spring tides of the Spirit, like the, the likes of which one may never see again, unless viewed from our position in eternity, and the future triumphs of Emmanuel. But why should it not have been accomplished in a short time, if the people were willing to be saved? Seeing that it is written, we are justified by faith and sanctified by faith, and that God himself saith, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Both John Wesley and James Coggy faithfully preached on their first visit to Nottingham, but the results were according to God's timing. And what were the different results of Wesley and Coggy's initial preaching in Nottingham? Or, I'm sorry, were the different results of Wesley's and Coggy's initial preaching in Nottingham any reflection on their faithfulness? What do the experiences of these two men teach us about focusing on results? Both men served God faithfully, and that is all that God requires of us. The rest is up to him. The ones who do the planning, 1 Corinthians 3, 7 says, or watering aren't important, but God is important because he is the one who makes the seed grow. Great stuff there. And talking about people getting saved, Sergio was just talking to his friend in Israel who he's been friends with many years and talked to about Jesus for for a long time. And the guy accepted Christ just within the past hour. So one more believer on the rolls. Pretty wonderful stuff. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the many blessings of this life. And we thank you for this class. We thank you for uh, the chance to come and to meet and to fellowship in your word. We thank you for Sergio's faithfulness with his friend, which has finally uh, finally sprouted and, and uh, borne fruit. And Lord, we also pray for those that we mentioned a minute ago, and we thank you for the fact that you're there with them and they know that. They know that you're there and tending to them despite their difficulties and afflictions. And Lord, we just ask that you would be with them and give them comfort and to restoration if it's your will we pray these things lord in jesus name amen oh i know the methodist church is just a basket case it's just completely gone oh it's disgusting it just it's horrifying the umc is it, it it's i don't know how people can stay in those churches when they do that and they just keep staying and and say, oh, I'm going to make a difference and we're going to get it back on track. It, it's not going to happen. It's going to continue to devolve. Well, I think and they're splitting. I think. They are splitting. And even the split churches are not following the Bible. So uh, I talked to somebody today that uh, was looking for uh, help as a missionary. And I asked, you know, what, what is your home church? And while he was talking, I went online and I looked at the doctrine there. And he says, I'm also, I guess, a member of this church at this time. And I looked on there and 
it does not match the Bible. They have a female preacher, you know, that assists the male preacher and et cetera. And I said, I, I can't help you there. I said, I'm not going to offer to help somebody, even putting his name out there, if in fact he is in a church where they don't file, follow the Bible. You have to follow scripture. If you're not willing to do that, and you know, it was charismatic church, by the way, and, and uh, supposed gifts of the spirit. And my, my uh, statement as always is the spirit gave us the Bible. He will never contradict himself, ever. The spirit does not contradict himself, despite what we think in church or how we act in church and what, who we ascribe it to, doesn't make any difference in the world. It is solely up to God to regulate the church, and he does that through his word. So um, what's happening in a Methodist church, as you said, they're turning over in their graves right now, for sure. Um, before you go today, they brought in a whole bucket full of mangoes. So please, if you want mangoes, take them on the way out. Uh, if not, they're just going to go back to the house and uh, we'll, we'll bring Hello, fresh ones on Sunday. But, uh, I don't know. That... Did we get rain at the house, Ma? Yes. We did, just a little bit. Okay. All right, let's go ahead and go to 1017. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 17. Wherever you want. That's fine. Okay, 14. Therefore, my dear friends, plead from idolatry. Speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks to participate in the blood of Christ? It is not the bread that we break in participation of the body of Christ. 17. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, but we all partake in the one loaf. Okay, a little different here. For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. So it says the same thing, just a little different terminology there. 1017 comments, um, we got, uh, yeah. In this verse, Paul builds upon the thought that the bread which we break is not the communion, uh, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? He just stated this and now begins with for we, in order to continue and expand upon the words. And there is a grand church filled with many people from many cultures and places. It is filled with men and women, young and old, and from people of every color. And yet, despite the diversity, we are one bread and one body. The word and is not in the original, and so a semicolon shows the thought better. We are one bread, one body. And the reason for this is that we all partake of that one bread, as Paul says. Paul just showed that the bread is to be considered communion with the body of Christ. Bread is made of many individual kernels of grain, and yet it becomes one unified substance. Likewise, we are individually many people, and yet we are one bread when we are in Christ. This brings up an obvious question. Does the taking of the communion bread result in our being one body? The question is important because it is the basis for what Paul is writing about in the first place. In the coming verses, Paul is going to tell the Corinthians and thus us, I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. He will say this in relation to participating and sacrificing to idols, and then he will build on that by saying you cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. If thought through logically then, the actual bread is not what makes us one bread. Rather, it is the reception of Jesus Christ as Savior that unites us. 
The bread then is a symbolic representation of this. Remember we talked about the different views on the bread and mm -hmm. is this the body of Christ, etc. It can't be what the Catholics claim or even what Luther says. It can't be because if it was, that would be what brings us as one body. And it doesn't. It's obvious if you just think it through logically. So um, if uh, where was I? The bread then is a symbolic representation of this. It is our way of remembering this bond and communing with the Lord in that remembrance. And why is this so important? The answer is that, one, it makes no sense for a non-believer to participate in the Lord's Supper. If somebody's a believer, they come up and there is a purpose for it. But a non-believer, there is no purpose. I've been in churches where they say, all are welcome, whether you know the Lord or not, this is the body of Christ and we're sharing it with you. It makes no sense to do that. Two, the Lord's Supper is a symbolic participation only. It is not literally the body of Christ, as Roman Catholicism says, nor does it mean that we are spiritually united with Christ when we take the elements, as Calvin says. If these were so, then anyone who was a non-believer would be either literally or spiritually communing with the Lord during the reception of the elements. Paul excludes this. What does that tell you? When we talk about things like that and you come to a point and it shows that Roman Catholicism is wrong in this point because of another place in doc, uh, the Bible says differently or you can logically think it through, what does that tell you? That doctrine matters. matters. Doctrine matters. That's exactly right. Doctrine, it, and doctrine does not change. It's we who misinterpret the Bible or we who change in our thoughts about the Bible. But doctrine matters in the Bible. In, the word of God does not change. His words here are intended to instruct us that communion is a public demonstration of an inward reality, just as baptism is to be an outward proclamation of a change that has been rendered in one's life. Both are after-the-fact pictures and remembrances of the work of the Lord. That's all they are. Therefore, if we were to eat at the sacrifice of an idol, not the meat itself, but at the ritual of the sacrifice, then we are indicating to those around us that we are willing participants in that particular society or religion, including everything that it constitutes. Now, does everybody understand that? Because Paul has already said that if somebody serves you something and they don't say it's from an idol, just eat it. It doesn't make any difference, right? The reason why is because you are partaking of something that is only symbolic to somebody else, but it has no bearing on you. Paul says, don't eat it if they say this was sacrificed to an idol, but if they just bring it in, eat it without any conscience, okay? It logically follows both ways. If you go and you sit at that table, eating the meat doesn't unite you with the demon at all. But when you sit at the table and you participate with those people, you are participating in what that table represents. And so you are condoning them. So Paul is very precise when he says these things. And if you think them through, then there are either consequences or not consequences, depending on how you approach what is given you to eat, okay? Or where you sit to eat. It's exactly the same premise with the Lord's Supper and with the, uh, you know, taking uh, meat from an idol's temple, okay? Um, where was I here? Um, and yet, if we are truly saved Christians, that participation, the one I just talked about, has no true bearing on our position in Christ. Therefore, the consumption of the meat of the sacrifice cannot be the actual participation with that demon to which it is offered. Same thing as the Lord's Supper for the non-believer. It applies to us with what is sacrificed to 
a demon or an altar or whatever. This may seem to be splitting hairs, but to Paul, it is an immensely important theological distinction that he will explain in detail in verse, verses 23 through 33. We can eat, as Paul clearly states and allows, the meat that was sacrificed to an idol without any conscience that it will defile us because it cannot defile us. In the same way, a person who is not saved and yet takes the elements of the Lord's Supper cannot, cannot, cannot be made holy through those elements. It is the participation in the ritual that Paul is especially concerned with, not the actual element that is used. Life application, the careful evaluation of the details, which build into a biblical doctrine, are important for many reasons. If they are misinterpreted or misunderstood, then further departures from the truth of Christ are inevitable. Eventually, entire systems of improperly administered teachings will prevail, as we were just talking about with the Methodist Church. As Paul said earlier in 1 Corinthians, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. He repeats this in Galatians chapter 5 and equates it directly with proper doctrine. 1018. Um, do consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat sacrifices participate in the altar? Okay, Paul is, this, the New King James Version certainly uh, gets it a little closer to the original. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? Paul has just been speaking about the Lord's Supper and our partaking of it. How does that fit in with participating in pagan sacrifices? To do both would be completely contrary to the purpose of partaking in the Lord's Supper. As an example for them to consider, he now brings in a lesson from the law itself. In this, he begins with, observe Israel after the flesh. This is an unfortunate translation when rendered by the NIV and some other translations, which say something like, consider the people of Israel. In Greek, it reads, blepete ton Israel katasarka, consider Israel according to the flesh. He's making a statement about Israel who participated in the sacrifices at the temple, regardless of whether they were really right with God or not. Hence the term, according to the flesh. All of Israel would go to Jerusalem and offer their offerings to God. Some truly believed and some simply went through the motions. But the sacrifices brought the people together as one. It separated them as a people and it showed their united allegiance under God under the God whom they served. When they went to these sacrifices, they actually participated in most of them. We're going to see that especially when we get into Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 12 through 14 in uh, some, some areas uh, or in some points. Some such, uh, some such as the sin offering were completely burned up, but most of them were handled differently, as Paul notes in the form of a rhetorical question. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? The question demands an affirmative answer. Yes, they are. A portion of the sacrifice was burned on the altar. A portion of it was given to the priest who conducted the ritual. And the rest of the offering was returned to the one who offered it for him and his family, if applicable, to eat. In this, he participated in what was offered. But it wasn't mere participation. Instead, the word Paul uses is koinonoi. It was a communion with the altar. 
just as we communion with the Lord's Supper. Regardless of whether these Israelites were circumcised in the heart or merely national Israelites who were only going through the motions, their sacrifices were a communion with the altar and they were thus identified with that altar, with the people of Israel and with the God to whom the sacrifices were made. If this was the participation by all who saw them as they offered, as they offered, and if it was also the participation of their fellow Israelites who looked at one another as a corporate body, then doesn't our participation in the Lord's Supper convey these same concepts? Likewise, what would people think if they saw us at the sacrifice to an idol? They'd think, what's going on here? Regardless of whether the idol is a true God or not, and we know that it isn't, that is irrelevant to the perception we are giving others by our actions if we participate in such a sacrifice when it is made. Paul shows that our actions have consequences because they produce perceptions in the eyes of others which may become a stumbling block to them. Life application. Paul shows us that the conscience of others is an important consideration for us as we conduct ourselves as Christians. We need to be understanding of others in our actions, which could cause them to misunderstand our freedoms in Christ. However, this does not include all things that people may find offensive. If someone doesn't like something we do, like eating meat because they are vegetarians, that is their problem, not ours. Discernment and understanding of what could be considered a stumbling block to others takes time to learn. And people will even argue over it, even though they might be both very scholarly people. Well, you're causing a stumbling block. No, I'm not. And I know I'm not. Then you have to debate it out and flesh it out. Maybe you'll come to an agreement. But it's not always easy to tell. But when it comes down to it, if it's going to cause somebody harm in their faith, their walk towards Christ, it may be a stumbling block. If it's not, if it's just a misperception on their part, that's their problem, not yours. Give them the doctrine and then go have your pork chop. Lord, give me discernment in order to know what actions may harm the faith of another. In this walk with you, it is my desire to show what is right in order to instruct my brother. Let me not be the cause of him to stumble, but instead help me to be a good guide to show him Jesus. What good is it to the team if I make the ball fumble? That can only harm the goal set before us. And so, oh God, help me to stick close to your word and to always bring honor to Jesus, my Lord. Hebrew Roots Movement. Hebrew Doing Roots Movement. Pretty much. That's, same. yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Even though it's going back to the same God. The same God, but it's an obsolete part of what we are doing in Christ. It is completely obsolete and it is done. You all right there, Bones? Oh. <laughs> that okay, he's, he's rubbing his eyes. Okay, so. 19. Do I mean then that the sacrifice offered to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? Okay, once again, it's a little differently worded. What am I saying then? That an idol is anything or what is offered to idols is anything? Okay, same, same words basically, but a little different structure. 1019 in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 4, Paul affirmed that an idol is actually... Nothing. That's right. So we have that answer right there. The fact that man worships something other than the creator in no way means that it is anything other than the material it is comprised of. Metal, wood, flesh, or so on. In reality, it is ineffective. 
and it is a lie. Isaiah even uses that term when speaking of idols in Isaiah chapter 44. Here he says this in uh, chapter 44, verse 19. He says, 44, verse 19. I'll go to 18. They do not know nor understand, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. And no one considers in his heart, nor is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I have also baked bread on its coals. I have roasted meat and eaten it. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes, a deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? People just don't even discern. We go through life and we don't even discern that what we're doing is just a lie. It's false. Anyway, understanding this, Paul made the affirmation that an idol is nothing in all the world, and that there is no other God but one. That's 1 Corinthians 8, 4. Since that time, though, Paul has been using examples of God's judgment on Israel for following after idols. And then in the verse preceding this one, he said, Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat the sacrifices partakers of the altar? With this noted, some might come to the conclusion that he is equating the participation in an idolatrous sacrifice with that of the participation in the true temple sacrifices. And so he asks, what am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? His answer is no. And it is not what he is indicating. Rather, he is showing that the participation in the true, the true temple sacrifices produced a bond between the people. Israel after the flesh was united as one, regardless of whether they actually believed in God or not. They went to the feasts, sacrificed at the temple, and ate their offerings. Thus, they were united in their rituals. If a believer were to join with pagans, pagans in their sacrifices, those pagans would feel this person was united to them in their belief. Thus, he would appear to validate the idol as something even though it is nothing in all the world. What was the very first thing that you read that Jeroboam did when he broke the ten tribes off from the two tribes ruled by Rehoboam? He, he, well, he built the golden calves. At the, yeah, that's right, the two high places, one in Dan and one in, uh, I'm forgetting. Anyway, um, that's the first thing he did. And the way you do, anybody wants to be a Levite, come on in and part. you can be a priest before the Lord, etc., etc. But once you have people going towards their gods, you are now getting them to participate with you and fellowship with you and getting away from the participation with the true God. That's the point of what's going on here. And that's why Paul is so careful about these type of things. Those idols are nothing at all in all the world. And yet they have effect on people's lives and in their minds and in their hearts and in their souls. And so just because something is nothing, it doesn't mean that it cannot affect you in some way or another. Life application, our business is to exalt Christ, not idols, demons, angels, Mary, the saints, or anything or anyone else. Let us then exalt Christ through whom we will receive his just glory. Okay, I didn't mean to stress Mary any, any more than any other thing, but the fact is that that is a huge distraction from the truth of God in Christ. And by taking somebody and saying, well, she's the mother of God, and therefore it's 
as damaging as anything else. And so my stress on Mary was to show that she is not to be worshiped. She is not to be idolized. She was the mother of the human Jesus. She was not the mother of God. God never stopped being God. Okay. She's the mother of the God man, but God has always been God. She is not married the mother of God as the Roman Catholic Church says. She was married the mother of the human Jesus, but who is the God man. Okay. She's not eternal. She's not sinless. She was a sinner that needed a savior. She did not avoid getting into original sin, which is, what's that doctrine called? You got it. Say, immaculate conception has nothing to do with Jesus. People are always saying, oh, that's, that's a doctrine about Jesus. Immaculate conception has nothing to do with Jesus. That is Roman Catholic heresy saying that Mary was kept from sin. She was, the idea is we are all born in sin. Why? Because we're born of a human father, okay? Sin transfers through the human father, and so we inherit sin. We're condemned before we're even born. We're condemned the moment that we are conceived, okay? That is the state of humanity. That is taught in the Bible explicitly. It is the doctrine of original sin. We are completely depraved even before being born, okay? But they say, think of it this way. There is a hole. And we're all born in that hole. But they say, this is Roman Catholic doctrine, that Mary was simply kept out of that hole. And so she was born out of original sin. There's a hole and she just walked around it and everybody else was in that hole. Okay. Can anybody tell me what the problem with that is? If she couldn't want everybody else. Exactly. If Mary could have been kept from original sin, then why did God send Jesus to die on the cross? It makes absolutely no sense because if he can take one person... And say, I'm going to keep you from original sin. And he could have done it for everybody. And it would totally, if one person, and I've said this before, if one person can be saved apart from the cross of Jesus Christ, the cross has no meaning. This is a real problem. And Roman Catholicism is heresy on steroids because it takes a little of the truth and it twists everything else. So you got to be very careful to stay away from it. Yes? That's the same problem that we have when they try to say, that the thief on the cross was an exception to baptism. Yeah, absolutely, but yeah. There, there was no have, exception to baptism. There can't be any exceptions. There are no exceptions. No That's right. He was saved, and he was saved apart from baptism. Baptism does not save anybody. All it does, it, that's right, it is a picture of what we went through in Christ. It is obedience to the Lord. Matthew 28 happened after the resurrection, and therefore when the Lord says it, it is under the new covenant. Are we under the new covenant? Yes. Okay, there you go. That's the answer to your question. There are not two gospels. There is one. Hyperdispensationalism is heresy. Okay, 1020. 1020. No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. Okay, that's pretty close. I'll let it go. In this, Paul makes a contrast to his previous thought. It read, what am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? The meat which has been sacrificed to an idol was merely meat, nothing more. In the verses ahead, he will show that we can eat such meat without regard to our conscience. That's verse 27. However, to ensure that he isn't misunderstood, he does acknowledge that food sacrificed to idols is nothing, and then immediately inserts rather. The meat is unchanged, but the sacrifice itself is wholly inappropriate to participate in. 
His words to support this are almost a reflection of a verse from Deuteronomy chapter 32. In that passage, Moses speaks of the people sacrificing to false gods, which are not God, and thus they, as Moses says, forgot the God who gave them birth. Here are his words of Deuteronomy 32. Let me take you there, 17 and 18. Deuteronomy 32. Oops, a little too far there. Dang it. Got a thing in there, which is causing it to jump pages really quickly. So uh, you got to go, Freda. All right. Have a wonderful afternoon. Be blessed. Deuteronomy 32, verse 17 says, They sacrificed to demons, not to God. To gods they did not know, to new gods, new arrivals, that your fathers did not fear. Of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful and have forgotten the God who fathered you. By participating in a pagan sacrifice, they are turning from God to a non-God who is actually a demon. If the ritual isn't to God, then it must be either to the devil or a force under the control of the devil. This is the battle we are constantly facing, a spiritual battle against wicked powers. We are told about this in the book of Ephesians chapter... Thank you. Everybody said six. We got a very smart class here. Um, let's see here. Uh, Ephesians. There Paul describes the reality of the situation as well as the protection that we are to take against it. In Ephesians 6, he says this. Philemon, Philippians... Uh, Ephesians, Philippians. There it is, Ephesians chapter 6, and then he says in verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. As this is the reality of our actions, we should never presume to attend a pagan sacrifice. Paul warns against it because, as he says, I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. Rather, we are to live in holiness and exalting of the true God through our worship of Jesus Christ. Life application. We, excuse me, we cannot participate in pagan rituals and come out unscathed. Stand on the word, cling to the Lord, and fix your eyes and thoughts on him alone. 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons, too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Okay, really close on that one. Paul, having established that a believer who participates in a pagan ritual would actually be fellowshipping with demons, admonishes the Corinthians that, as he says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. His words do not indicate an impossibility of physically carrying out such an action. Rather, they indicate the moral impossibility of it. This is certain because of what he will say in the next verse. We can actually do what he is warning against. Christians do it all the time. But if we do, then we are serving, a, we are severing a tie of fellowship with the Lord when we do it. As he says in his second epistle, what accord has Christ with Belial? That's 2 Corinthians 6.15. The answer is that there is no accord between the two. By participating in pagan rituals, we stand alone with the demon and apart from Christ. This is because you cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons, as he says. It is an either-or situation. The severity of our actions in this matter is noted by Paul in the next chapter. There he will say the following, which is a precept that certainly includes the instruction he is now giving. 
He says, therefore, we say it every week when we take the Lord's Supper, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. In fact, Paul continues in the same set of verses, noting the consequences of such actions. There were consequences already among them, as noted in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 30 through 32. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep, meaning they've died. But when he says sleep, that means they have died in the Lord. Lord. Exactly. They're doing things they shouldn't have been doing. They have not lost their salvation. salvation. Okay? So much for people that like to hold to that doctrine for whatever perverse reason. Verse 31, for if we judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Chastening can include him calling you home because he doesn't want his name disgraced. You will be chastened, but you will not lose your salvation. As he says, we will not be condemned with the world. I feel so bad for people that are in the bondage of Wesleyan Arminianism, where you can lose your salvation or other doctrines, but in particular Wesleyan Arminianism because it permeates so many denominations within Christianity. Oh yeah, you can lose your salvation. The only thing that is, is bondage. That's all that doctrine is. It's saying that you have to be uh, in this box, and if you don't, then we're going to excommunicate you from the church, or you're going to have to give us a little extra money on Sunday, or whatever they make up. I don't know. But it's bondage. That's all it is. You will not lose your salvation, but you sure will lose your joy, and you may lose your life. Yes? I find that it works the other way for me. When I think about not losing my salvation, I want to live more. That's right. That's exactly right. What, I don't want to go. Do that's that. right. I want to live more. Yeah. What he right. said, because they can't hear you, is he said that knowing that you can't lose your salvation makes you want to lose more. I, I mean, it, it makes you want to live more for Christ. Want to honor more for Christ, not less. Okay. And that's the way it is. If you know that you have freedom in Christ and you truly love Christ, you are going to live for the Lord more and more, not less and less. When you're told that you can lose your salvation, it becomes a hopeless cycle of futility. It's That's horrible. all it, it is. It is horrible. Charlie. Yes. David said in Psalms 51, restore to me the joy, joy of, of my salvation. That's, that's right. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. Yeah. That is exactly right. He didn't lose the salvation, but he sure lost the joy of it. Yeah. Having said this, it should be noted that Paul's words here record the first instance of the words, the Lord's table. This terminology has been used by faithful followers of Christ for 2,000 years as we have proclaimed the Lord's death till he comes. The taking of communion in observance of this is one of the two ordinances commanded by the Lord. Yes, there are two ordinances, not seven or eight according to Roman Catholicism. There are two. They are mandatory in the Bible. This is not optional. It is not hyper-dispensationalism where you can say, well, I'm not going to be baptized, but I am going to take the Lord's Supper. These are ordinances commanded by the Lord after the resurrection, after the initiation of the new covenant. Jesus said with his own mouth, therefore, go forward and baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, 
in the Holy Spirit. And that is what we are to do. We are to be baptized, okay? That is a physical act. That's not speaking of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which comes the moment that you are sealed. It's a study. We'd have to go through the verses to show you that, but there are two things. One is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which means what you are given, the seal of the Spirit when you call on Christ. The second is the outward acknowledgement of that. And he was speaking of water baptism. That's very clear from the book of Acts and from Paul's epistles. It's very clear. Okay. And then uh, secondly is the taking of the Lord's Supper. We are to do this. Okay. The baptism and the Lord's Supper are the two ordinances commanded by the Lord. Be sure to take partake of this with gratitude and humility. If you haven't been baptized, you should be baptized. That's what the Lord would ask you to do. It's making a public acknowledgement of the inward change whenever it happened. If it happened 20 years ago or if it happened today, you should go out and you should be baptized, publicly acknowledging it so that those people who are offended by the gospel will see that you're willing to stand up against their offense. Okay, we've got a person that received the Lord in Israel today. He will now hopefully be obedient to the Lord and he will be baptized and hopefully he'll even do it out in public maybe go down to the mediterranean sea and do it right in front of the people on the beach of tel aviv i'm standing with this lord that saved me i'd love to hear about that happening people might get angry they might stone him to death so what he's in the lord who cares all right anyway um life application the lord's supper is a high honor to participate in some churches offer it a couple times a year some once every month or two but there's nothing wrong and everything right with taking it every time a congregation comes together. It is a continual reminder of the wondrous work of Christ for us. And having said that, there are some denominations that only do it once a year. And I have been in churches where they have never done it. Okay? Yeah, whatever. People just, they, they feel that uh, they're obviously whatever. Yes. You know what? There's nothing in the Bible that says... Anybody can or can't baptize, okay? I, I don't think that there's any requirement. It just simply says to his disciples, go and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so, uh, you know, I, I would personally say that it should be a man that does it, okay? Just because the male is all the way through. I don't allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man, etc. I think it's probably just appropriate that you would have men doing it. But other than that, there's nothing that's said one way or another about it, so... If that answers your question. Well, it does. Okay. It's interesting. When he says go out and baptize. Right. That who is doing the baptizing? You can't have minister authority. Yeah, no, you can't. That's right. And what, what she's saying, because they can't hear you. So let me repeat what she just said. She says that uh, it, it, you can't have ministers everywhere. And there's people that may lead a lot of people to Christ out in the jungle or, you know, out in Burma. And those people are missionaries. They may not be ordained as ministers, but... Somebody needs to get those people baptized. And you hear about that all through Christian history where people went out and they evangelized and there's a thousand people that they baptize in the, the say, the Ganges River or something. So it, it's not explicit. Doesn't the Bible say that we're all? Well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, uh, we'll have to get to that verse and we'll talk about it. But yeah, um, we we are ministers in one way or another, but that doesn't give people the authority to overdo scripture. Uh, yeah, and well, I'm talking about where scripture says that uh, men have certain responsibilities, women don't. Pastors have certain responsibilities. Deacons have certain responsibilities. So to say we're all ministers will some lead somebody to a faulty conclusion that now I can do anything I want. So we, we need to be careful. We need to get to those verses and go through them. So anyway, let's uh, go ahead. Um, 10, 22. 22. We are, tr are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? 
Are we stronger than he? Okay, pretty much the same here. As noted in the previous verse, we were told that we cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons, and that we cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. In follow-up to those words of instruction, Paul's question is, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? In other words, by doing this thing, which is morally wrong, we will with all certainty provoke the Lord to jealousy. It is the obvious result of participating in idolatry. In the giving of the Ten Commandments, the people of Israel were told explicitly that the Lord is a jealous God. Thank you. This is stated in the giving of the Fourth Commandment, which is found in Exodus chapter 20. Let me take you there, and we'll read that really quickly. Hang on, Charlie. Davis, Exodus chapter 27, 26, 25, 24. Okay, so one more page. And, whoops, two pages. All right, 20, and then uh, verses 4 and 5. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Okay? Um I said it's in the fourth commandment. It's not. It's in the fourth verse of the Ten Commandments. The fourth commandment is, does anybody know? No, the fourth commandment is the Sabbath. Okay, so the fourth verse, B-E-R. I need to make sure I change that uh, verse found in X. Okay, there you go. Likewise, a few chapters later in Exodus, the Lord expresses his name as jealous. It is the strongest tie possible to the nature of himself in relation to his redeemed people. That is seen in Exodus chapter 34 with these words. He says in Exodus 34 verse, uh, where am I, 14. Let me go back to 13. But you shall destroy their altars, break down their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. And in a thought directly from the Song of Moses, we see how idolatry is exactly what provoked the Lord to jealousy after they were redeemed from the land of Egypt. It was a constant source of irritation to him as he led them through the wilderness, as he notes in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 21. He says, They have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols, but I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. Speaking of, the, that's right, the Gentiles, okay? Paul uses that, I think it's in Romans 11, to tell that the Gentiles are brought in to provoke Israel to jealousy, all right? The words of instruction as well as the words of chastisement were given to the people in order to get them to wake up to the holiness of the Lord and their need to cling to him alone, forsaking all other gods, which are not gods at all. Through the law of Moses, or I'm sorry, though the law of Moses is now obsolete in Christ and is set aside by his work, we are dealing with the same holy Lord. His nature does not change, and our relationship to him in this regard also does not change. Where does it say that explicitly in the Bible? Malachi, Malachi I the Lord your God... Do not change. And then in Hebrews, 13, verse uh, 8. 
Yes, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Okay, Miss, what's that, Miss Garrett? Yesterday and forever. Yes, okay. This is the intent of Paul's words, which ask, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? He's the same God. Yes, we're not under the old covenant any longer. We're under the new covenant, but we can provoke the Lord to jealousy. And in order to solidify that, he finishes this verse with the question, are we stronger than he? Vincent's word studies notes that the force of the interrogative particle is surely we are not stronger. In other words, it is an exclamation, even though it is put in the form of a question. We definitely are not stronger than he. He judged his redeemed people Israel, and we can ex expect the exact same judge's hand when we fall into idolatry. Let us heed the warning. Life application. In Christ, we have a new relationship which goes far beyond that of ancient Israel. We have a salvation which can never be lost and which unites us to him so that we are one body. And because of this, we might feel that we are safe from judgment. This is not the case. Later in 2 Corinthians, Paul will speak of the time when we stand before Christ in order to receive our judgment. When that time comes, let us be found approved and not lose the wondrous heavenly rewards that would otherwise be granted to us. Our salvation is secure, but our rewards and our losses are being earned through our present walk with Christ. It's up to you, folks. Every one of us has our own choices to make, and how are we going to be obedient to the Lord? How are we going to be pleasing to the Lord? And it doesn't matter what you do. I don't care what you do. If it is not accompanied by faith, that's right, it is not pleasing to the Lord. I don't care what it is you do. If you don't accompany it with faith, it is not pleasing to the Lord. 1023. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Okay, basically the same. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Paul reveals his thoughts on the delicate matter of eating meat sacrificed to idols in a verse which carries the same tone as he previously made back in chapter 6. There he said this, chapter 6, verse 12, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. In agreement with the thought that all things are lawful for me, Paul will issue words to confirm that idea in verses 25 through 27. The Christian has the liberty to act in ways that demonstrate Christ's fulfillment of the law. We have been freed from restrictions once imposed upon us by that law. However, in agreement with the thought that not all things are helpful, Paul will issue words to confirm that idea in verses 28 and 29. There is the truth that our liberties are granted, are intended to grant us individual freedoms. And there is the truth that our individual freedoms should not be exercised when they negatively affect the sensibility of others. We've talked about that for chapters. Where all things are lawful, there's the truth that not all things edify. And if something does not edify, then it may actually be destructive. Paul said, remember what he said about eating meat? If I'm gonna harm my brother, I'll never eat meat again. Not everything is constructive, it can be destructive. We have to consider the effect of our actions towards others if we are to demonstrate love towards them. In a wise choice of words, McLaren gives us these thoughts concerning Paul's doctrine. 
McLaren says he did not keep his theology and his ethics in separate watertight compartments, having no communication with each other. With each other, the greatest truths were used to regulate the smallest duties. Like the star that guided the Magi, they burned high in the heavens, but yet directed it to the house in Bethlehem. You got the bigger issues and you got the smaller issues and you don't let one outweigh the other. Okay, the bigger issues should direct us to handle properly the smaller issues. They may weigh, outweigh each other, but they should still be in accord with each other, I guess is a better way of saying it. Life application, let us use our freedoms in Christ wisely and for edification. When there is no conflict between what we may do and how it will negatively affect others, then go forward with a clear conscience. But if such a conflict arises, be wise, discerning, and considerate towards those whom we may offend. However, if our actions which uphold a biblical mandate are found to be offensive, that's another issue. We are never to compromise Christian doctrine for the sake of tolerance. Ever. Verse 24. Nobody should seek his own good the good of others okay this is it says the same thing but still let no one seek his own but each one the other's well-being okay basically the same just different wording so they don't plagiarize each other yes. the words used by paul here are still given in relation to food which has been sacrificed to idols but they form a general principle for any debatable issue he's already revealed that an idol is nothing and he has also shown that participating in the sacrifice to an idol aligns a person with that idol and with those who sacrifice to it, even though the idol is nothing. He has shown a distinction between the meat and the ritual, but some may not perceive that distinction. They may tie the two together in their thought process and come to an incorrect conclusion concerning the eating of such meat. In order to avoid such a stumbling block in a person like this, Paul will continue to give words for us to consider. Remember, these words follow a general principle, even though he is discussing a particular issue. In the end, love should be the first consideration as we conduct our actions before others. As a side note, the word well-being here in the verse I just read is inserted for clarity, but it is a good choice of wording. Other versions say good, welfare, advantage, and so on. Ye old King James Version says wealth. When it was written, it meant more than what wealth means today, and it implied a general sense of well-being. However, as times go by, words evolve and they no longer carry the same signification they once did. This is why it's always good to check with multiple versions and not get myopically fixed on one translation, lest misunderstandings arise. Life application? When we seek out our own well-being, it is inevitable that others will receive less esteem than they should. It is impossible to exalt ourselves above others while exalting others above ourselves. Thus, we should walk in humility and defer honor to those around us. As the Lord says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Do not exalt yourself in the presence of the king. And do not stand in the place of the great. For it is better that you, that to your ear he sing, come up here to a higher position, good mate. Humility is a noble and dignified trait, and something which is highly esteemed by the Lord. 
In due time, he will exalt you. So patiently wait until the day when he speaks to you a goodly word. Be patient and walk in a humble way. Exalt others and do not esteem hunt. Oh, and do not your own esteem hunt for. By doing so, you will receive his favor some wondrous day when you were brought through heaven's open door. 1025. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions. Okay. Yeah, it really, it splits right in the middle of there, but it's a good split if you think of it. Mm -hmm. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake. What did it say? Eat whatever is sold in the meat market. What's he talking about? Is he talking, who is first, who is he talking to? Gentiles. The Gentiles, the Christians in Corinth. Okay, he's writing to the Gentiles. They're not people that are in Israel. There's all kinds of meat hanging there. None of it was sacrificed according to the law of Moses. None of it. And many of the types of meat hanging there were forbidden by the law of Moses, the Jews. That's right. He says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake. I wish people could read these verses and not come to faulty conclusions about Paul, about his doctrine, and about our rights in Jesus Christ. It's appalling to have people write up commentaries that say that Paul never diverted from the law. He was an obedient Jew throughout his life when he's telling you to eat whatever you want from the meat market. What's that? They're not reading the Bible. They're, they're, they're making their commentaries based on their presuppositions, and they are not reading the Bible at all. Paul's words in this verse take us right back to the discussion of verse 17, which said, For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. In that analysis, the question was raised, does the taking of the communion bread result in our being one body? Paul's answer here shows that the answer is no. He instructs the Corinthians and thus the Gentile-led church to eat whatever is sold in the meat market. Okay, when I keep saying the Gentile-led church, does that mean the Jews are not included in it? Absolutely not. This is a lesson for Israel. The Jews that are in the church should be participating as the Christians in the church. I'm talking about the Gentile Christians in the church. Okay, there's one body. We have the same set of instructions. So what is happening here when we have a Gentile-led church does not mean that it doesn't apply to Jews. Okay, it does apply to Jews. It is a lesson for Israel when someday they come to Christ to realize that we have been wrong, completely wrong, all along. Everybody got that? When I say Gentile-led church, it's because the Gentiles are in the predominant position. There's a lot more Gentiles than there are Jews, but the Jews are in the same covenant, and they are under the same mandates and the same uh, freedoms, everything that the Gentiles are in. That's a really important thing to understand. Okay, I'll read it again. When we go shopping, there is nothing sold there which is forbidden. If we see a tasty delight of whatever kind of meat, and regardless of where it came from, including from the sacrifice at an idol's temple, it is simply meat. If the eating of the meat, comparable to the taking of the bread, resulted in our being uni united to the idol, then we couldn't follow through with Paul's instruction. However, meat is meat and bread is bread. The eating of either does not result in our being united to the idol. The meat or united to Christ, the bread. Rather, it is the participation in the ceremony, which 
others would see and thus identify us with the entity represented by the sacrifice, whether we actually were or not. Therefore, as perception is important for conscience sake, we are to keep our conscience clear. And at the same time, we are not to negatively affect others' conscience through our actions. Understanding this, Paul continues with his thought by saying about our meat shopping experience, asking no questions for conscience sake. If we ask questions about the meat, what will the result be? If it was for a sacrifice to an idol and that knowledge was passed on to us, it would then become a point of conscience, not merely of eating. But what if it wasn't sacrificed to an idol? It would make no difference at all. And so we see that either way, by not asking, then no matter of conscience is connected to the meat. Was it sacrificed to an idol or was it not? If we don't ask, then nothing is attributed to the meat at all. The meat doesn't change by the sacrifice. The meat in relation to us changes by the conscience, meaning the perception of what the sacrifice means. In this, we can see the truth of the statement, ignorance yes, is bliss, yes. absolutely. There is no defiling of our conscience by having others assume that we are participating in an idol's sacrifice. And there is no defiling of another's conscience by their assumption that it makes any difference at all to us about where the meat came from. Everybody understand that? We go to a store and they have meat that was sacrificed to whatever God. Go to Publix and we have no idea where that meat came from. We have no idea how it was processed. Zero. We go in, we just pick it up, we slap it in the cart, we take it home and we cook it. Right? End of deal. But if we're talking to the guy and they say, yeah, we got this from a Muslim uh, uh, whatever, blah, 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 you leave the meat there because you now know that it was sacrificed to a false god. Everybody got that? It is, if it's not stamped with the halal stamp, eat it. There's no question of conscience. Zero. The meat is meat is meat. It is what happens to it in your mind and in the mind of the people who has now discussed it with you that matters. Okay, and the type of meat makes no difference in the world. If you want to eat and believe it or not, it is a you can go online and you can read this. You can read how to prepare it. Possum roadkill. Oh. Yes, it's true. If it's picked up in a certain amount of time, it's perfectly fine and they will tell you how to prepare it. Everybody here is laughing and grossed out, but it doesn't make any difference. If that's what you like, there's nothing wrong with it. What's just go online and read it or go on, type into YouTube. Just just take my word for it. Type into YouTube, possum roadkill preparation, and they will have a video on it. Okay. Hey, I'm just telling you what the world is about. Okay. I'm here to instruct you on theology. You go figure out about the world. Life application. If somebody has a thing, go look it up while we're talking and then it'll prove that I'm telling you the truth. Life application. When Paul wrote to those in Corinth about buying meat, he said that we should eat what is sold in the meat market. Two obvious points come up which have been shunned by many sects and cults. One, the meat sold does not in any way adhere to the dietary laws found within the law of Moses. I just brought that up a few minutes ago. And so two, the type of meat also does not in any way adhere to the dietary laws found within the law of Moses because you're not allowed to eat meat that has died by itself or been run over by a car. That's why I brought up that example, okay? If your church, pastor, denomination, and so on tells you that you shouldn't eat any type of meat, 
Pork is always a good example, but so is roadkill. It's time to leave and find a new place of worship. Paul is rather clear here because once you start mandating certain types of meat because of the law of Moses, you have now gone into the heresy highway. All right, that that is all there is to it. You have diverted because the law of Moses is done. It is finished. It is obsolete. It is annulled. Okay, that's explicit in Hebrews 7, 8, and 10, and it's explicit in Colossians chapter 2. All right, it's also implicit at least 20 other times in the book of Hebrews. If it's annulled, you have freedom from that law, entire freedom. The only time that you are bound by any precept under the law of Moses is if it is repeated in the oh, new the covenant. covenant. Okay, all right, 1026. Four. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Okay, great stuff. This completes the thought of the previous verse. Read together, they say, eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. This thought is seen first in Deuteronomy 10, verse 14. It is then repeated twice in the Psalms, in both Psalm 24, verse 1, and Psalm 50, verse 11. The idea is that there is one creator, and everything stems from his act of creation. Therefore, anything offered to an idol, which is nothing in all the world, as Paul has already told us, isn't changed by that idol. It was an animal created by God, and it has been given to man to eat. Only during the time of the law were dietary restrictions imposed on man for a set purpose and a set time, which ended when Christ fulfilled the law. Now, all food is considered clean and acceptable to eat. This is shown to be true in the account recorded in Acts chapter 10, and which is explained throughout the writings of Paul, such as in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Let me take you there really quickly, and that's in verses 4 and 5. For every creature, it doesn't say for every creature but pigs, it says for every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving for it is sanctified by the word of god and prayer it is sanctified by the word of god and prayer and when people email me and they ask a question about you know how do i know if i should marry this person or that person you know i don't know if god's leading me in this way or not do you love her yes does she love you yes sanctify it by the word of god and prayer and get married don't look for a heavenly sign don't look for something falling out of the sky right I don't care what the issue is. If it is not prohibited in the New Testament, then pray about it. You have now sanctified that action and go do it. Okay? That is all that we need to do. There are times when we... What's that? Yeah, if she's a believer, that's what I'm saying. Oh, maybe I didn't say that, but it, it ought to be obvious. Okay? But I did say that if it is not prohibited in the New Testament. What does it say? It says, do not be unequally yoked. So there you go. If something is allowed by Christ, if it is not forbidden by Christ, and you're not sure if you can do it or not, or you should do it or not, pray about it. And if you want to do it, then go do it. It is that simple. I've got a guy staying with us right now, okay? He was out in Reno, Nevada. He wanted to come to Sarasota. Is there anything wrong with coming to Sarasota? No. There's nothing in the Bible that says you can't move from Reno, Nevada to Sarasota, Florida. And so what do you do? You say, I'm going to go there. And he, I'm sure, knowing this guy, that he prayed about it first. I'm being given a sign. I know that he read the Bible about it because he had a verse that he sent me. And he said, 
I, it's like the Lord's telling me to come, right? So if you're not sure about what to do in life, don't just sit there and fret and not make a decision and miss out on an opportunity. If you want to start a business, as long as it's not against the word of God, as long as it's not something that will cause people to stumble, then pray about it and do it. And if you go bankrupt, guess what? Rush Limbaugh said, I failed 25 times before I became what I am today. He failed and he failed and he failed. So what? He's not a Christian anyway, or he might be, but he's a really nominal one. But he never, as George notes, he doesn't ever bring in the word of God, okay? He'll talk about his brother, who's a very strong Christian, but he failed and finally he made success. And just because you're a Christian does not mean that you're going to be successful at what you do, okay? Or that things are gonna go the way you anticipate. Just so everybody here is aware of this, because I have permission to tell you, is that Bill and Patty, who went out to Arizona to be missionaries with Mission One, are no longer going to be with Mission One. That did not work out for them. But they, they sanctified it by prayer. It's not against the Word of God. It was a good unit. So they went out there, and now they've got to find something else to do. So they're looking for leading in that. They're looking for prayers in that. And that's what we should be doing is praying for Bill and Patty to get give them wisdom as to what their next step is. And they may get to another place or they may come back here and he may get a job and he may fail at it. There's no guarantee. But if it's not against the word of God, go ahead and do it. Okay. Pray about it first though. Sanctified by the word of God in prayer. Therefore, whatever is sold in the meat market is acceptable based on what I just read from 1 Timothy 4, 4 and 5. Whatever is sold in the meat market is acceptable and may be eaten without regard to conscience. Paul will continue explaining this in the verses ahead and noting the exceptions as he goes, because there are always exceptions. Life application, the food we eat has been given by God for our sustenance. Whatever you eat, be sure to give a prayer of thanks over it, thus acknowledging that it is Christ who has made it clean. After that, enjoy your meal. Why do I say pray about it? Some people say, I don't need to pray when, before I eat, and some people don't. They're Christians. But it says right there in 1 Timothy, everything by prayer and supplication. Okay, so pray about it, even if it's just a short prayer. Lord God, we're acknowledging that you gave this to us. Amen. Whatever. Okay, um, verse 1027. If some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put Okay, he's going through this again. He's going from a different angle now. Instead of going to an idol's temple, he's doing it in somebody's house. Okay, whatever they put before you, it doesn't matter what they put before you, even durian. Eat it without asking questions. Okay, if you don't like durian, that's fine. But whatever they put before you, eat it. You don't have to ask any questions. You don't have to have your conscience seared. All they have done is they have taken something on a plate and they put it in front of you. If it looks good and it tastes okay, dig in, okay? The previous thought that was given concerned buying meat at the market. About this, we learned that we could eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake. When something looks tasty there at the meat market, we should feel no constraints on buying it and enjoying it. The next line of thought concerns an invitation to dinner by a non-believer. The assumption is that this is speaking of a private house or maybe an invite out to a dinner at a restaurant, not an idol's temple, which has already been addressed. If a non-believer invites us out in such a manner, and if we desire to go, then we are given complete freedom to do so. 
Too many Christians sit in their little Christian circles and they never get to know anybody else. They never enjoyed the friends they were with in high school, etc., etc., etc. There is nothing that says you can't go to a non-believer's house and have a dinner, okay? There is nothing that would forbid a Christian from going out for a meal with a non-believer. While out, we are also given the freedom to eat whatever, whatever is set before us. It doesn't matter what has been prepared. All foods are acceptable to be eaten and none are considered unclean in and of themselves. This is so plainly clear and explicit that only an intentional twisting of scripture can come to any other conclusion. But Paul adds on a restriction to the meal. We are to ask no question for conscience sake. He will explain what that means in the coming verse. Having noted this, Commentators have attempted to insert personal opinions which do not align with Paul's words here. A couple should be highlighted. Some say that the thought, and you desire to go, is an insert which indicates that Paul was somehow implying that it wasn't a smart choice, but that it is allowable nonetheless. This requires inserting a presupposition which is not supported by the context of the passage. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I'm sorry, I put 1 Corinthians. I know it's 2 Corinthians that I want because it's chapter 5. So let me go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and 9 through 11. It says, Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent. Is that what I want? Hang on. We read. Um, da, 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 da. I think, yeah, no, that's not what I want. I'm going to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and I have past tense instead of future. Okay, yes. 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homeless. Oh, I'm in 6. That's not what I want either. See, I did, I did it again. Five, 9 through 11. Here it goes. I wrote you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Here it is. Yet, I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written you to not keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Okay, there is absolutely nothing wrong with associating with the unsaved, and Paul makes that perfectly clear. He just said it. A second thought concerning the verse we are analyzing is that of drinking. Some commentators state that because Paul says, eat whatever is set before you, but fails to mention the word drink, it implies that Paul was a teetotaler and was indicating that the Christian should not consider imbibing if so offered. I hate to tell you, but that is a complete misuse of scripture based on a faulty presupposition. Paul has been addressing meats, sacrifice to idols, and he is continuing along with that thought. Eating. A meal implies all that the meal includes. If one doesn't drink alcohol, then they may refuse what is offered. If one does, there is nothing, and I hate to tell people that hold on to this, there is nothing to forbid partaking along with the host. Presuppositions inevitably lead to faulty doctrine and bad analyses of scripture. It is inappropriate to use personal standards against others when providing scriptural interpretation. This has nothing to do with promoting the drinking of alcohol. Rather, it has to do with promoting a sound interpretation, which is, in, which is consistent with the rest of scripture. 
I had somebody, he emailed me until I was almost nauseous and finally I didn't answer his emails anymore. He kept saying, because I brought up drinking and that it's acceptable within the confines of the Bible. There are certain things about drinking you shouldn't do, like getting drunk, okay? But he said that the Lord said that, uh, take this cup and pass it among you. I shall not drink of this until it, right. you know, is, it sees its fulfillment in the kingdom, right? He said, because the Lord said, pass this on, we are not to drink alcohol. What did he tell them? Drink this among you. And it would also prove that all of the apostles are apostate as soon as Jesus left because they all, not all of them, but the ones that write about the issue all condone drinking. Okay, Paul in particular, but there are other uh, aspects of that within the uh, books of Acts and the epistles. Okay, so you can't take one verse out of scripture and twist it and come up with a doctrine unless you want to have faulty doctrine. But you know, he just beat it to death, and finally I just said, you know, there's no point in me answering this guy anymore. He's got it stuck in his head, and it ain't going away. All right, if you don't want to drink, don't drink. But in the Bible, there's nothing that says a person cannot drink alcohol. Leave them alone, okay? You're only showing yourself to be uneducated in Scripture or showing a personal bias, which should not be, all right? Life application, presuppositions need to be set aside when analyzing Scripture. Scripture. If one doesn't eat certain meats, that is no excuse for imposing that standard on another. If one doesn't drink alcohol, there is no excuse for attempting to shame others into not drinking it. It is Scripture given by God from which we are to derive our doctrine. And that means all of Scripture. It needs to be taken as a whole, a united whole. First 1028. But if anyone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, for both the sake of the man who told you, and for conscience sake. Okay, that stops right there with yours? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to read this one. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you, and for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's in our footnotes. Okay, it's in the footnotes. Okay, absolutely. And that's the difference between the Byzantine and the Alexandrian text. So there you go. Paul just got done telling the Corinthians that if they were invited to a meal by a non-believer and wanted to go, that they should feel free to eat anything set before them and to not ask questions about it. It is merely food and it is to be received as such. However, he now qualifies that beginning with the word, but this is to show that there are exceptions to how we conduct ourselves. And so he begins with, but if anyone says to you, there's an active thing going on here. Most scholars interpret this to be speaking of a weak Christian who is making the statement. That could be true, but the speaker is not identified, and if he is just any attendee at the meal, then how could that be known? Instead, it could be anyone at the meal, the host, a family member, a servant, or any other Christian. The passage is left vague enough to show us that regardless of who speaks, the principle he will convey will remain true. And so if such a person says this was offered to idols, Paul's words, then Paul's instructions are do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience sake. What this means is that the person who speaks, be it the host or a weak Christian or anyone else, may be harmed by your consumption of the food. If it is a non-believer, they may feel that you, to you, Jesus must just be another God. They will not come to understand your conviction that Jesus is truly Lord of all, okay? If it is a weak believer, 
then their conscience toward Christ may also be harmed. They may question how the Lord upon whom they called is to be considered on par with the idol to whom the meat was sacrificed. Remember from earlier in chapter 10 that this is what Paul was referring to. People are associated with the idol when they participate in the sacrifice of the idol. Because of this perception, we are not to eat meat, which has been so identified for conscience sake. Paul will show in the coming verses or verse that he is not worried about the conscience of the well-grounded believer, but of someone who does not understand our freedom in Christ. In advance of that, he reaffirms the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. This is an undeniable truth that the well-grounded believer can attest to. And because of this, his conscience is undefiled by what he eats. However, his actions in the eyes of others may be misunderstood. Life application. If you understand that Christ alone is Lord, then you have the freedom to enjoy the world which the Lord, he is the Lord of. But such freedom comes with responsibility towards others who may be weak in their faith. It is not acceptable to exercise your freedoms while harming others in the process. Everybody got that? Don't harm others in the process of exercising your freedoms. We got time for one more. 29. The other man's conscience, I mean, not yours. But why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? Exactly. In the previous two verses, we were instructed that if we were invited to dinner, we can eat whatever is set before us, asking no question about it for conscience sake. However, if someone were to say that the food was sacrificed to an idol, then we shouldn't eat it, again, for conscience sake. In this verse, Paul explains that by saying conscience, I say not your own, but that of the other. He has gone to great lengths to show that an idol is nothing and therefore it can have no effect on the food that we eat. The meat doesn't magically transfer into something else, nor is there anything which adheres to the meat which would cause us to somehow become defiled. It is meat and nothing more. Therefore, with this knowledge, our conscience should never be affected by what we consume. However, the conscience of others may be affected. If we eat meat that has been openly acknowledged as having been sacrificed to an idol, then those who know that we are Christians might think we are condoning the practice of sacrificing to an idol. Thus, their conscience will be defiled. Whether they are non-believers or weak believers, the result will be a defiling of the truth of Christ in their minds. This is what Paul is conveying. And to complete this verse, he says, For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? He states this to show why it is not for our conscience' sake, but for the sake of the other's conscience. We have full liberty in Christ because Christ is Lord. The earth is his, and from him came all things. Those who are strong in their faith know this, and therefore their conscience will not be defiled by the knowledge that the food they are eating was sacrificed to idols. We also know that another man's weak conscience or unclear thinking on an issue is not the source for judging our liberties in Christ. Rather, our superior knowledge should be the basis of our actions towards them. Just because someone thinks we are doing something wrong has no bearing on whether we are actually doing something wrong. We are accountable to Christ alone and not to the conscience of another. As we know this, then we should be willing to sacrifice our liberties for the sake of another who does not 
know these things. Life application. Once again, Paul shows that there are no foods which are unclean to the Christian. The issue of what is physically healthy is not addressed in the Bible. Everybody got that? Because people are always making up personal doctrines about Christians not eating certain things because they have preservatives or some crazy thing like that in there. That is never addressed in scripture. It does say, you know, that we're the temple of the Lord and blah, blah, blah. Listen, don't take, take things to unnecessary extremes. As Jesus said, you eat something, it goes in and it passes out. And that is it. If it will fill you up and if it will satisfy you and it's not going to harm you, then go ahead and eat it. All right. And harm has to be a proven thing because there are studies out there that say that this is bad for you. And then the U.S. government has said it's perfectly fine. So you know what? If, it, if it's there and it's got it on the packaging that this is acceptable, I eat. And if it says that it's expired on, say, um, it's 16 June 29, if it expired on 16 June of 2017, it's just getting good in 2019. Okay. So. Paul shows that there are no foods which are unclean to the Christian. The issue of what is physically healthy is not addressed in the Bible. The issue of what is morally acceptable is, and all foods are morally acceptable. However, there is the issue of conscience of others. If our liberty liberties cause them a moral dilemma, then we should refrain from engaging in them until our position is explained and understood. And if they still disagree after that point, enjoy your meal without regard to their conscience any longer. They have been given proper doctrine and you've done all you can for them. So here we go. Heavenly Father, thank you for the wonderful blessings of uh, being in your word, knowing what it says and holding to it fast and not diverting from it, not letting us bit get uh, you know taken away on crazy doctrines which come up from time to time. Help us to stay pure to the truth of your word without deviating from it, without adding to it or taking anything away from it. Lord, help us to do this, that we will stand approved in your presence. And at the same time, help us to be loving in our attitude towards those who don't have this doctrine and implore them to come to the Bible study at the superior word where they can get that doctrine and be fully aware of what is necessary from your word. We pray this, that you will be glorified and we pray it in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Okay, did anybody look up Roadkill? No. No, okay. Well, go home and check it out. Really I guarantee you're going to find it. We're going to say uh, goodbye to the folks online. Break. Look, Roadkill.